0: He's the one, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, amen, he's the one, hero Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, he's the one tonight, whatever our needs are, and they are many, they are varied, they are not trivial, and yet he remains the answer for every one of those needs, amen, thank you, Brother Clyde T for song selection it fits right into what we've been talking about we enter in with thanksgiving and with praise and Jesus is the one and uh, of course we're talking we're in the midst of our series on praying through the tabernacle we were talking last week about how everything in the tabernacle points to Jesus he's the one And every element in the tabernacle points to Jesus. Every role, every office, every service, everything that's in there points to Jesus. He's the one. Without Him, we would have no access to the presence of God. We would have no hope. We would be lost and without hope in this world. But He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. Amen. Amen. I'm going to let you be seated tonight. I'm not going to read... A scripture in our opening. We will probably close with scripture tonight at the conclusion. But uh, as we began last week, we want to talk about um, the tabernacle, the tabernacle plan. And if you've got that little fly through ready, maybe we can show that. And just as a way of review, just a quick overview of the furniture that's in the tabernacle. Um, What you see here, that open area there is the outer court, and uh, you'll get another view here as you go through that front door, Uh, that gate, that curtain opens, and the first piece of furniture there that you see, that is the brazen altar. There were some tables around for facilitating sacrifice, but you see the different ceremonies and the different rituals associated with that involved blood applied to the altar, and then that is the laver of water. Those are the two pieces of furniture we'll be talking about tonight. What you see there is the holy place, and it was covered with a series of curtains and skins and various things. And uh, then, as you you see, there are five pillars at the entrance of that. Those will become important. But when you enter in there, it's completely closed The only light comes from the golden candlestick that is inside the holy place. There is also, of course, a table of showbread um, that was part of uh, the ritual of the priest. And then there is, at the entrance to the most holy place, there is the altar of incense on which um, the sweet-smelling incense was put. There was a fire and a burning there. And then inside the most holy place... The Ark of the Covenant, probably the most famous piece of furniture in the history of the world. But that is just a quick summary and overview of what the tabernacle looks like. And I I would draw your attention tonight to the fact that uh, the furniture is arranged really in sort of a cross arrangement. And uh, if you've done any teaching of home Bible studies, you've taught salvation Bible plans. If you've ever looked at the tabernacle plan, that has been drawn out, no doubt. Um, but if, uh, when you get that overview slide up, Brother Andrew, you can see that the, um, there in that outer court, again, there is the altar of sacrifice and the laver. And then inside, to the right and to the left, are the golden candlestick and the table of showbread. And then straight ahead, the altar of incense, and ultimately the most holy place with the Ark of the Covenant. And it has been well noted that this, even in the arrangement of the furniture, points to the cross. Not just the individual pieces themselves, but even the way that they are arranged. And if you think about the altar of sacrifice, if that were to be representative of the feet of Jesus where he was nailed to the cross through his feet, Then there is the laver where the blood and the water are mixed together, mingled together in the laver just as in his side he was pierced and wounded and the blood and the water came out together. And then of course inside the holy place his hands represented by the golden candlestick and the table of showbread and then moving toward his head the altar of incense, the holy of holies. So, there are really three main divisions of the tabernacle there are the out there 's the outer court, and there is the holy place, and then there is the most holy place and Some have even made the uh, the comparison of the fact that Jesus himself said he is the way, the truth, and the life and there is an interesting overlap in those three elements and the three divisions within the tabernacle. The outer court, which we're going to focus on tonight, um, really is uh, the purpose of the outer court is to prepare the priest for what goes on inside the holy place and on the day of atonement inside the most holy place. But what happens outside is preparatory. And some people have said that is like Jesus said, I am the way. And the Altar of sacrifice and the laver, those set the order of approach. This is the way that you get into the presence of the Lord. Jesus said, I am the way. Then in the holy place, you find more about the nature and the character of God. Jesus said, I am the truth. That is the character of God, the revelation of God. And that is where uh, we are faced with God's character and he begins to work on us. He provides for us. In there, but then the transformation happens in the most holy place, in the holy of holies. So there is the way on the outside. There is the truth in the inner court, and then in the innermost, there is the life, the presence of God, the very source of life itself. And the priest had a uh, was given an order in the way that he was to approach and go into that most holy place. So. There are so many ways in which this all ties together and points to our salvation. But the question you may be asking, well, what does all of that have to do with the way that I pray? And why does this matter in the way that I pray? And how does this impact my prayer life? Well, I would say, first of all, the the tabernacle plan was not just something that Moses dreamed up. But this was something that was given to him, and he was ordered to do it specifically by God himself. And I think there is a very good reason why the Lord told Moses to do this. And it is that this is not just um, some ancient artifact. This is not just some relic of some ancient culture. But in fact, what God revealed to Moses was patterned after and was a shadow of what actually exists in heaven. Now, let me explain a little bit. There is, I don't believe, and maybe we don't know exactly what does exist in heaven, but scripture is very clear. This is a shadow. This is impacted, and the reason why it's laid out this way is because of what is already in the heavens. Just as when we come to... Gather and we participate in New Testament salvation. We repent, um, we're baptized in Jesus' name, we receive the Spirit. You can see those elements as you work your way through this tabernacle, right? Repentance, significance of death at the altar, baptism, symbolized by the laver where we are washed, and then entering into his presence, even into the Holy of Holies. Receiving the Holy Spirit, that's all prefigured. But we don't bring literal animals for sacrifice. We don't have a literal laver where we wash after performing the sacrificial rituals. And there's not some curtained place that we go into, yet we see the parallels with our own experience. Now, the Holy Ghost that we've been given is the earnest of our inheritance. So what exists in heaven, I suspect and I Propose to you that when we get there and when we see it, we will see how all of this fits together. For now, all we can say is that we have seen shadows of what is in heaven and we've received a down payment or the earnest of what God has for us. And we can know and have confidence that what he has for us is so much greater. So uh, let me... Let me make the case a little bit that this is prefigured or shows what is actually in the heavens. In Hebrews chapter 8, the writer of the book of Hebrews, verse 3, says every high priest, he's talking about this Old Testament tabernacle and all of its services. He says every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices. Wherefore, it is of necessity that this man, talking about the priest of the new covenant, remember Hebrews is taking all of the subjects of the Old Testament and he's comparing them to the new covenant that we have in Christ, talking about how much better our covenant is than the old covenant. And when you understand Hebrews was written to Jewish believers who were sliding back into their old rituals and their old habits and were requiring those things, trying to require those things of new believers. So the writer of Hebrews is taking those old things and saying, look how much better it is. Why would we go back to those things when those things are types and shadows and we have the substance? So he says, this new man must of necessity have somewhat also to offer. The new priest has got to have a sacrifice. For if he were on earth, he should not be a priest, seeing there are priests that offer gifts according to the law... Now look, verse 5, he's talking about those priests that operate in the tabernacle, the earthly tabernacle of the Old Testament, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. They are just dealing with the shadow. Nevertheless, this is not some random idea, this is not some crazy dream. This was not eating pizza before Moses went to sleep and then having some nightmare and coming up with this scheme and figuring out, no, this was revealed by God because it shadowed what's going on in the heavenlies. And he said, when Moses was admonished of God, when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see saith he that thou make all things according to to the pattern showed thee in the mount. So the writer of Hebrews is saying the pattern was shown and the pattern is based on and is a shadow of heavenly things. A little bit further down in chapter 9, verse 23, the writer says it was necessary that the patterns of things in the heavens should be purified with these. He's talking about the offering of blood in the Old Testament and putting those on the various... Um, pieces of furniture and so forth, and all of the cleansing rituals, he said those things were necessary because these were patterns of what was in the heavens, and they had to be purified. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these, and this is where he makes the connection, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. Christ is not entered into the holy place that you're familiar with, He's not entered into Solomon's temple or Herod's temple or even the tabernacle in the wilderness. No, Christ, those things are figures of the true. But Christ has entered into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. So it's very clear that what we have been given is based on what actually exists in heaven. Can I draw you a map of what exists in heaven? No, but I know according to the scripture that what was given to Moses was given to him as a pattern to build things after based on what was in the heavens. Now, if God gave Moses this pattern for how to enter into the presence of the Lord, and if that pattern was based on heavenly things, then would it not also make sense that it would have some import to us who desire to enter into and live in the presence of God. This is where the connection is made. When we come before Him, when we come as community, we come and have a worship service, or whether we are praying ourselves, yes, we have been filled with the Spirit, but when we want to really enter into communion, into the presence of the Lord, it makes sense that we would look and see what does the scripture say about how we ought to enter into the presence of the Lord. And so that's why we emphasized last week about entering into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Now, as I mentioned tonight, we're going to focus on the outer court, two pieces of furniture. These two pieces of furniture actually work together and they are accomplishing their work together. And what their their work is, what their purpose is, is, as I said, to prepare the priest for what goes on inside the holy place. So what happens in the outer court is really strictly for the priest alone. And intercession, petition, all of these other things, and we'll talk about those, we will get to them, But our focus tonight is going to be when we come before the Lord, we come with thanksgiving. But then what else do we need to do to prepare our hearts in order to enter into his presence and to be able to minister not only in prayer, in intercession and petition and and asking the Lord to intervene on our behalf, but also preparing us for ministry to each other, ministry to the body, taking care of each other. Is there Are there things that we should be doing if the priest had to do these things in order to minister on behalf of the nation of Israel? And if we're a chosen priesthood, a royal priesthood, chosen people, then it makes sense that we would also do likewise. Um, So the other thing to note here about the outer court, there is no covering. Everything that happens in the outer court is lit by natural light. When you move into that inner court, there is... Uh, the source of light there is supernatural. We'll talk about that in weeks to come. One key verse that came to mind in thinking about this is the psalmist asked, Who shall ascend unto the Lord? Who shall ascend unto the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Now, I don't, uh, I, I, in the time of the psalmists, they were in Jerusalem, and um, there may have even been... Uh, Psalm 24 may have even been built uh, around the time of the building of, or been written around the time of the building of the temple. But the idea was Jerusalem was up on a hill. And uh, so the psalmist is saying, who's qualified to go up to the hill of the Lord? And who is able to stand in the holy place, in his holy place? And his answer comes back in two parts he that hath clean hands and a pure heart. And what we're going to see tonight is that these two pieces of furniture work together to accomplish that in us as believers. As we come into the house of the Lord, we will first of all get a clean heart and then we will get clean hands. And we'll be qualified uh, by the grace of God to enter into his presence and to work. Now, we understand that we do nothing to qualify ourselves. It is the grace of God. But... The New Testament also tells us if we confess our sins, he is faithful and he's just to forgive us. So we know that the grace of God is for us and is available for us. One thing we should notice, the effectiveness of what will go on inside the holy place is directly dependent on how effective the outer court is. The command to the priests in the Old Testament was to wash in the labor that they die not. It was important that they follow the instructions in the outer court so that when they went into the inner court, they were prepared for what was there. And this is where we are tonight. This is an important aspect of our prayer. This is going to control the effectiveness, really, of where we are. So when we come in that door, as you have already gathered, the first place that we come to is the brazen altar. and We touched on this a little bit last week, that uh, the Lord doesn't lower the bar to entry. He doesn't make it appealing or palatable to the natural man. The first place you see is a place of brutality and death. And uh, the animals that would be sacrificed on that altar... There was no other place for them in the remainder of the tabernacle. They didn't. Uh, they didn't carry on. They didn't go past the altar. That was as far as the animals got. Now, the priests would take some of their blood and some of their leftovers, and they would use that. There was some residue of the sacrifice that was important later on. But the point is that when that animal came in the door, it was going no further than. That altar, and there was no escape and uh, in fact, there are even some instructions and injunctions in the scripture that um, that those certain parts of the animals were to be completely burned up, destroyed, or just completely obliterated, and so it is with us when we enter into the presence of the Lord. we have to remember that we are sinful. People and our natures are sinful, and God is a holy God. And if we're going to approach Him, everything that is in us that's not like Him has got that is not like Him has to be burned out, it has to be taken out, it has to be removed. This whole thing is about me being willing to come into His presence and climb up on that altar, drag myself kicking and screaming up onto the altar because. Our human nature doesn't want to do it. You know, we are all familiar with the idea of repentance. We came to the Lord, maybe at some crisis point in our lives, and we turned our hearts toward the Lord, and we gave ourselves to Him, and we said we'd been wrong, and we wanted to follow after the Lord, and that is a huge step. But you know, it's not a one time deal, it's not a one shot deal. It happens over and over again because you will think that you have slain that giant. You will think you have put those desires to rest, that you have taken care of them. And the instant you relax just a little bit, that thing is going to rear its head again. And those desires are going to come back on you again. And so this idea of repentance is something that happens over and over again in our lives. This... Crucifying of our own will. Um, You know, Jesus did not sin, so he didn't have to repent. There was never anything that Jesus did wrong, so he didn't have to repent. But even for the Lord himself in the garden, when he was faced with literally crucifying his flesh, he recoiled. He said, oh, Father, let this cup pass from me. And ultimately, he resisted and he strained to the point where he sweat drops of blood. But ultimately, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. If it was so difficult even for the Lord, allow me to say it was difficult for the Lord to put his human nature down. How much harder do you think it's going to be for you and me? The Lord was sinless, and yet he clearly, we see him here in the garden, struggling with his own humanity, not wanting to die. If you think you have finally killed your flesh, but you're sitting here breathing, you are kidding yourself. Our flesh, our humanity has many ways to make its desire very clearly known. And it will scream out to us. Skip a meal or two. Um, you know, try to make a consecration. Just, just try to put the flesh in its place. Oh, as long as the flesh is kind of getting its way, you have an uneasy peace and everything is okay. But you, you try to take another step forward and see what happens. You try to you try to raise the bar a little bit. You try to move the line of scrimmage a little bit in your struggle and you just see how quickly your flesh reacts and rises up. This is why it has to be an everyday thing. Yeah. Jesus said if any man would come after me, let him deny himself. Deny himself what? He doesn't say. He says deny himself. Whatever your flesh wants is not good for you. You got to deny yourself. It's it's interesting. Ironic is not the right word. It's actually makes perfect sense when you really look at it. We live in a world that says you need to be. First of all, you need to discover yourself. You have to. You need to know yourself. And, and you know, can't get down and get serious with being an adult because I got to go find myself. Right. We have this generation um, that wants to go find themselves and then they want to be true. Now, get this true to your authentic self. Well, I mean, I've had toddlers. I know what your authentic self is like. That is your, that is unrestrained flesh, right? Everything is about me. And I'm going to pitch a fit if I don't get what I want. And Jesus said, if you're going to come after me, you have to deny yourself. Deny myself? No. I have to be true to my authentic self. No. You need to take your authentic self and you need to crawl up on that altar and you need to crucify. Crucify your authentic self. Because Jesus said, if you're going to follow me... You got to take up your cross. This is not. Jesus made it clear when he said deny deny yourself. This is not some passive resistance. This is not like oh no you shouldn't do that. No baby you shouldn't do that. This is not like. You know, sometimes when there's chocolate around, you say well I really shouldn't do that while you're reaching to get it right. So sin is not like chocolate. Sin is destructive. And your human nature is not like stealing an extra bonbon. Your human nature will take you out. And if you're going to follow after Jesus, you can't just, it's not some trifling matter, it's not some casual thing. No, Jesus said, take up your cross. You got to get on the cross. I mean, the most unpleasant and most horrific way, uh, I mean, I don't think about this often, I don't imagine different horrific ways to die, but that one's pretty bad. If you've ever read through medically what happens whenever, you know, the Lord, when he showed himself to Thomas, Thomas said, Lord, my Lord and my God, and Jesus said, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are those who believed and not seen. So I want to be one of those. I just believe. I don't need all the details about what happens. I can't stand it. I can't deal with it. I can't tolerate it. I just have to say, Lord... What you did at Calvary is beyond my imagination. It's beyond. But then the Lord turns around and says, well, you want to follow me? You've got to do the same. Oh, Lord, not that. There's an altar at the entrance of the tabernacle. When we come before the Lord in prayer, it is appropriate that we search our own hearts. And that we ask the Lord to search us. Search me, O Lord, and know my heart. And see if there be any wicked thing in me. Why? Because if there is, it needs to go on the altar. You say, what kind of things need to go on the altar? Well, start with Galatians chapter 5. The works of the flesh. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred. If you've got any of those things going on, those need to be crucified. But it's not, don't stop there. Keep going. Get to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy... Peace, long-suffering, if you don't have those things, crucify what's sitting there in their place. Usually, <laughs> the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit is selfishness. If I can't love right, it's probably because I've got my, I'm, I'm really an idolater. I'm worshiping myself. I'm worshiping my own self-will. I need to get up on that altar. And I've got to die all over again. And I think, Lord, I just did this last week, two weeks ago, yesterday morning. I just did this. The Lord said, yeah, but you're not done yet. Because as long as we live in these bodies, we are going to be under the influence or we will be influenced by the desires of our flesh, desires for comfort, desires for satisfaction, desire pride, desire to be approved. Desire to not be rejected. Desire to be accepted. The desire to be affirmed. All of those things are good in their right place. But if you crave affirmation for the sake of affirmation, you are at risk of seeking it from the wrong places and in places that will lead you to destruction. We have to find our self-worth in Jesus. And the only way that we do that is by getting on the altar. The altar is the place where things die. And so that's where we go. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter. Does your love measure up? Maybe we need another trip to the altar. You know, we call this area around the front of the church, come to the altar and pray we better not lose sight of the fact that the purpose of the altar, when I come up here, there's something in me that needs to die. There's something in me that needs to be changed. And God needs to be at work in my heart and in my life because the altar really is the place of sacrifice and of death. And so that's where we find ourselves. Revelation 21 talks about all of those You know the verse that says all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire? Well, there's a lot of stuff before that all liars part. The fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, whoremongers, and all liars shall have their part. If we find any of these things, the fearful, the unbelieving, The Lord puts those in the same category with a lot of things that would cause us to recoil. We need to check our spirits. God has not given unto us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. These are the things that God gives to us. And it's only our own nature and the nature of our enemy that pushes us in these other directions. So the first thing, when we come to prayer... It's great to come in and offer a time of thanksgiving. Lord, I'm grateful for this opportunity to be in your presence. What a beautiful privilege it is for us to be able to pray. Have you thought about that? Man, have you thought about what a privilege it is to be able to just talk to the God of the universe? I mean, if I wanted to talk to the president, if I wanted to talk to the mayor, not even the mayor of Houston, if I wanted to talk to the mayor of Friendswood, I couldn't do that. But I can just walk in... To a room in my house or into this room and begin having a conversation with the God of heaven. What a great and awesome privilege. Lord, I'm thankful for that. But I know that just inside this gate where there is thanksgiving, there is a place of death. And the only reason why I approach that, the only reason why I'm willing to is because I know there is hope. That is not the end. It would be too much if that was the end. Who would ever ever crawl up on that altar? But Paul said in Galatians, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. What What a paradox. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. When our old man gets up on that altar and dies, what we are doing is we are allowing God to work in us and create us anew. And that's why Paul would say, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And this is the beauty of it all. Jesus, as I said, Jesus himself recoiled at the idea of Calvary. But the writer of the book of Hebrews characterized it like this, that whole situation. You remember that Hebrews 11 is the discussion of all of the faithful, the roll call of the faithful. And verse chapter 12 says, wherefore... Seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, all these faithful ones that have gone before us, let us run with patience the race that is set before us, and let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. What was it that motivated him to go to the cross? What was the joy that motivated Jesus to go to the cross? It was restored and repaired relationship with you and me. He considered that joy sufficient to take him to the cross. Even though he prayed, Father, let this cup pass from me. Somewhere in there, before he got to the nevertheless, there was a realization that there is joy on the other side. And when we come into the presence of the Lord, we will naturally recoil and resist that altar that sits at the entrance. But if we can look past that and see the joy that is on the other side, it will make it worth it all to get up onto that altar and crucify and cleanse the things that are not like him. And have them burned out of us. Now when you finish at the altar, there is... The place of washing, the brazen laver, it's filled with water. And the priest would go there and wash. And as I mentioned already, it's the place where the blood and the water are mingled together. And uh, I guess if you think about it, the priest has offered this sacrifice for the sins of the people, but yet there is the residue that still remains on him, his hands, his arms, and he goes to that laver to finish. Task. The psalmist said, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. If we really did it right at the altar of sacrifice, we've taken care of the heart, but we've got to clean our hands. We have to clean our actions. We have to finish the job. We have to cleanse ourselves of all of the things that would keep us away from the presence of the Lord. And so this is what happens with the laver. Um, they were, of course, to wash, as I said, that they die not. Now, I, I know there is a type there of baptism, but we're baptized one time in Jesus' name, and that is, that is sufficient. But there is an ongoing washing that occurs in our lives. And I would propose to you tonight that that ongoing washing occurs by the work of the Word of God in our lives. There is a sanctifying effect of the Word of God in our lives. What do do I mean when I say sanctifying? There is a cleansing and a setting apart. If something was sanctified, that really meant it is set apart for a specific purpose. So the vessels that were in the tabernacle or in the temple, they would be sanctified. That is, they were made according to certain specifications and then they were cleansed and they were kept from other purposes. They were set apart for that purpose. This is what the Lord seems to be saying at the brazen labor. We need to be washed so that we are separated and set apart for his purpose. And one way in which that occurs is the working of the word of God in our lives. How many of you know the Word of God is alive? Hebrews chapter 4. The Word of God is quick. That means alive, not just fast. It is fast, but it's quick. It's alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. You ever thought about that? Able to distinguish the Word of God. Is able to distinguish between your thoughts and your intents. Sometimes you just have a passing thought. You know, my mother used to say, just because the bird flies over your head doesn't mean you have to let it make a nest in there, right? So, just because you have some passing thought, you don't have to dwell on it. You don't have to. You don't have to follow it down all of its paths, everywhere that leads you. If you know a, a thought is not like the, is not like the Lord, you can put it out. And the Word of God is able to discern, distinguish, even in our own hearts and in our own lives, the Word of God is able to distinguish between the things that we thought and what we actually intended. Does anybody else have that tension between what you really wanted to do and what you actually did? Paul did. He said, I know that in my flesh dwells no good thing. He said, when I would do good, evil is present with me always. Read Romans chapter 7. He says, I try to do good, but the thing that I didn't want to do, those were the things that I did. The things that I didn't want to do, those the things that I did do. And so he was dealing with this tension, and and the Scripture says this is what the Word of God is able to distinguish between those things. There is a sanctifying effect of the Word of God. I think believers... Ought to try to memorize the word of God. And one reason is because meditation, you can, if you have a verse memorized, you can meditate and think on that. When the lights go out at night and you're laying there all alone in the quiet of the darkness, you don't need a Bible. You don't need a phone. You've got it right there and you're able to roll it over in your mind. Or you can be driving down the road. You don't have to be distracted with a device or with a book. You can roll it over in your mind, having those verses ready and available to you. What did the psalmist say? He said, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. There is a sanctifying effect of the word of God. It will cleanse us. It will keep us clean. Two verses before that one, the psalmist asked the question, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? How how does a guy keep his hands clean? How does a guy live right? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. You just read through Psalm 119, verse after verse, about the beauty and the power of the word of God in our lives and how it affects us and it impacts us and it cleanses us. It sanctifies us. And I would say to us that whenever we come away from that altar of sacrifice, there is a cleansing that God wants to put in our hearts, even in our prayer time, of the Word of God. And maybe it amounts to reading a chapter or two. Maybe it amounts to allowing the Lord to bring to your mind verses that you've memorized and you turn those psalms into prayers. But the The word of God, if you will allow it, it will cleanse you. Remember Ephesians chapter 5? I know everybody thinks when you talk about Ephesians 5, we're going to talk about husbands and wives. and Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. But you know, I probably mentioned this before. There's three verses there that are to the wives. And there's nine verses to the husbands. And the Lord, through the apostle Paul, there in Ephesians 5, He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, okay? What did he do at Calvary? He gave himself to purchase the church. Ephesians is a beautiful book, and the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, back in chapter 3, he says, the Lord has shown to me things about the church that he hid for ages and ages. And he describes it. And this is what he's describing. Christ gave himself for the church, not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world, for the church, that he might sanctify, set it apart, and cleanse it, how? With the washing of water by the word. There is something about the action of the word of God in our lives that cleanses us. Jesus said to his disciples, John chapter 15, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. And in 17, when he's praying in the garden, John 17, he prays, Lord, he's talking about his disciples, Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. I'll say it again. There is a sanctifying and a cleansing effect of the word of God. In our lives, we need to have it in our lives. it needs to be a part of us. The labor is a very interesting piece of furniture. If you read through <laughs> those chapters in Exodus and you labor your way through there, what you will find is that many pieces of the furniture in there were made of wood and they were overlaid with some other metal, either gold or maybe silver or brass, but it was wood at the core and it was overlaid. But the laver is solid brass. Solid brass. Now, one of the interesting things about brass is, of course, it's what we would call copper. Um, It's a copper alloy. And it can be polished. And it can be made where it's highly reflective. And in fact, in ancient world, they didn't have silvered mirrors. They didn't have mirrors or looking glasses. They had Shiny metal objects. And that was the only way they could get a reflection of themselves. If you look in Exodus chapter 38, it will tell you that when it was called time to build the laver, they called for all the ladies to bring their looking glasses and they used those to make this laver. What's your point? My point is that in all likelihood this laver was polished and it was reflective And when they would go there, they would see themselves in that laver, and as they washed, they saw themselves. It speaks of the judgment of God and the importance of understanding and knowing ourselves and allowing the Lord to work in us. And what does James say in the New Testament? He says, James chapter 1, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a glass. What are you saying, James? I'm saying when you go to the word of the Lord, it's like a mirror. Oh, yeah, I know, I know the Bible tells us about the nature of God. But it also tells us about ourselves. And when you go to that word of the Lord and you begin to search it out, what you will notice. This is why you can go to a church that's 150 miles from here and nobody knows you from Adam. And you walk in and the preacher preached the word and it reads your mail. Because the word of God is quick and is powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword and it's shined up like a mirror. And it speaks to us and it tells us what manner of people we are. This is why when it's time to climb on the altar and you say, well, what do I have need of being crucified for? Well, if you would read your Bible, you would know. If you saw yourself in the mirror of the word of God, you would know what needed to get on the altar. That's why these two pieces of furniture, they work hand in hand with each other. They cleanse our hearts. They cleanse our hands. They work together to prepare us for the work of the ministry. We find ourselves in the word of the Lord just like we see ourselves in the reflection of that brazen labor. So, what are you saying, Brother Starks? I'm saying when you go to prayer, you go with thanksgiving, but you know just on the other side of that gate... Is that altar, that death, that brutal, inescapable altar? But just beyond the altar, there is the labor, there is the washing, there is the cleansing, and there is the preparation for the service of God and what we will do with the rest of our lives. This is how we prepare ourselves to enter into His service. This is how we prepare ourselves. To intercede for our families and for our church and for our city and for our own needs, and to do the work of prayer that the Lord has laid out for us why don 't we stand together tonight as i was <clears throat> as I was thinking about all of this, my mind went to psalm fifty one and uh, when you read psalm fifty one of course that is The Psalm of David, after Nathan had come to him and pointed out his sin and made it publicly aware, Psalm 51 is David's prayer in response to his sin. And as you read through Psalm 51, it becomes harder and harder to distinguish where the altar is and where the laver is because David is crucifying himself and he's Asking the Lord to purge him and cleanse him and wash him, and it goes back and forth. Why don't we, as we come to a close tonight, I'd, I'd like to just read this. If you've got your Bible, you might turn to Psalm 51. The psalmist prays, "Have mercy upon me, O God, according to Thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of Thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions." It's not a bad prayer to pray whenever you come. Pray your daily prayer. Wash me truly from mine iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and clear when thou judgest. He was saying, you have every right, God. You have every right. You're justified. Whatever your judgment is, it will be You will be in the right. I have no grounds to stand on. I was shapen in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Get this. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. 51.6. Thou desirest truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part thou shalt make me to know wisdom. So purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me. I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins. Blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And uphold me with thy free spirit. Cleanse me. Wash me. And restore unto me the joy of your salvation. What a great privilege we have to enter into the presence of the Lord. Amen. As we As we close tonight, I'd like for us to go to prayer. I'd like for us to just pray and ask the Lord to bury these words in our heart tonight. He has given us... The type and the pattern. And I don't know about you, but life gets busy and we all have lots of things on our mind. If we're not careful, when we go to prayer, we pray with scatter like a shotgun, right? We're all over the map. Maybe I should say I'm all over the map. I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about that. Then I start solving a problem at work and I realize I'm not praying at all. I've gone from praying to worrying, right? But there's something about having... A pattern that can keep us on track and say, there is a purpose here. It's not just that everything that comes to my mind gets articulated, but God, I have a purpose for being here today. I have a a purpose. I want to get into your presence. I'd like for us tonight to just pray and ask the Lord to bury these words deeply in our hearts tonight. Lord, we're so grateful. We're so thankful tonight for the opportunity to serve you. What a great privilege it is to be able to communicate with you, to commune with he, you, to bear our hearts and, and express ourselves, but also, Lord, to hear your voice. And I pray tonight that you would help us, Lord, to be able to, as we enter into your presence and as we enter into our times of personal prayer, Lord, that you would illuminate to us the areas of our lives that need to be transformed and changed by your presence, the things in us that need to be up on the altar and be completely destroyed in your presence, but then also, Lord, the washing, that cleansing that you bring to us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us To prepare our hearts and prepare ourselves for the work that you have for us inside the holy place. God, that you would work in us and that we would be pleasing in your sight. Wash me, O Lord. Purge me with hyssop. Cleanse me, O Lord, in every way and restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Lord, we ask all of these things. In Jesus' name we pray. So thankful, God, for your many blessings and the ways... In which you've dealt with our lives we give you honor and glory lord we magnify your name tonight amen amen well lord bless you you can go in the name of jesus we'll be back here on sunday morning 10:30 expecting great services in the house of the lord amen, amen. lord bless you